welcome to The Last Thing I Saw. For the latest episode, we're going to have a tried and true smorgasbord style. And for my co-pilot uh, on this journey, uh, I'm very pleased to be talking again with Mr. Mark Ash. Hello, Mark. Hello, Nick. Hello, Last Thing I Saw listeners. Uh, it is great to be here bringing exciting news and spreading the gospel of cinema in mid to late August, the best time for movies. <laughs> yes, historically the, the best time for, for movies. Yeah, also, you know, all manner of global disaster and upheaval. But yeah, it is an interesting time and, and a good time for, for catch up. And also, I guess, a canny time for the first thing we'll talk about. But I guess I just also want to ask, you know, what, what, what are you up to these days? What's keeping you, what's been keeping you busy? Well, I have been, maybe we can talk about this now. I have been uh, burdened slash privileged, privileged with the burden, burdened with the privilege of voting in the uh, <laughs> Sight and Sound Greatest Films of All Time poll. And so I have been scrambling through the canon in abject embarrassment at oversights <laughs> in my lifetime of cinephilia and trying to think uh, long and hard about what, what 10 movies um, I want associated with my name in perpetuity, or at least as long as young uh, moviegoers want to sort of look up what they should be watching and how they should be thinking about greatness and artistic canons. Um, it's a complicated exercise, but in the back of my mind, there is always this sort of idea that, or a memory really of being, you know, doing cinema studies at NYU and living with a couple of film students and looking through the 2000, the most recent ballads, which at that point were 2002 mm -hmm. and being sort of, and looking at like a much smaller voting pool and at those times and some really just colossal names making some really interesting picks. Like it always stuck with me that like Robin Wood's favorite Hitchcock was Marnie and thinking like, wow, that's mm -hmm. a really powerful statement that resonates and reverberates through the years he's been gone for a long time now and so i think like being in many ways the millennial robin wood i think that <laughs> my, i think that my list is equally important thankfully it's not but just the sense that that i can't quite discount the possibility that like somebody will watch something and invite it into their lives because of me mm -hmm. which is a possibility i cannot entirely discount is uh is I, 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 you have your fans of course and, and there are people who is it you don't want to corrupt young minds or you want to corrupt them only in the best ways i yeah i'd like to i i think i it for me it sort of reverted to being a personal exercise in um in celebrating movies that were have been meaningful to me over the time that i've wanted to vote in this poll but it's also been like a great excuse to um to watch things just so like not it's it's very unlikely that i'm going to watch something that i'm going to stream something on the criterion channel that i've never seen before or haven't seen since college a week before handing in my ballot and and decide at that moment that it supplants let's say i don't know vertigo or night of the hunter as like one of the greatest 10 films of all time as of like this month but it's also just been a reward it's just exciting to be to have the impetus to sort of think about great movies and to chat about them with my friends and, and say like, Oh yeah. Passion of Joan of Arc of Arc really slaps. Like just, which is not something you say in, in day-to-day -day life, even as like a working film critic, you don't just have the opportunity to marvel at 
Yeah. The intensity of those close-ups, the almost sort of like medieval spareness and intensity and paucity of objects in the frame other than faces and to just think about the entire breadth of cinema history. So it's been great for me. (laughs) I don't know about how it's been for you. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, in a way, of course, it's like a nightmare, just in the sense of like, I mean, there's one way of viewing the prospect of making a list of 10 movies as a kind of disaster because uh, it makes me think of Noah's Ark where, (laughs) or any, you know, which is kind of one of these, you know, originary uh, selection stories, (laughs) which only works when you have a big enough arc, if it works at all. So, you know, not to get biblical, but it's just, you know, 10 is, is, is not a lot of biodiversity uh, when when it comes to everything that, you know, film can do. Um, So, I just going in, I have to accept it's going to be arbitrary because I, as I'm sure you could, you could make 10 different lists of 10 mm-hmm. and then just pick at random one of those 10 lists. That's honestly, in a way, similar to, to the way <laughs> I did it because it just kept going on and on. At a certain point, I was like, well, really any of these, you know. Um, and then, of course, you have the strange thing, which is that you have a lot of people, not to compare the whole endeavor to Twitter, but you have a lot of people talking in different registers, basically. Mm-hmm. So some people are putting movies down as their favorites. Some people are have an idea of what it means for the best film to be. And it's not even, and, and believe that could somehow be objective and are doing that. Um, other people are doing that, but it's actually their favorites, you know, or saying, you know, and then there's always that question. Um, and, you know, and then I'm casting judgment on, on any of those. And some people are saying, well, there's not enough of, post 1980s cinema or there's you know enormous glaring gaps things like that <laughs> then it's all put in the same stew and i think your viewpoint is you know in a way the one i, I share which is just that i mostly like writing about movies because i like sharing a movie with someone and saying why didn't you see this you know <laughs> so, um, so then that's ultimately what this can come come down to not that people are going to like look at I don't know. I don't know if people are going to discover. I mean, that's also like the Olaf Muller uh, or Jonathan Rosenbaum approach. This is my favorite film is the one that you have not heard of. <laughs> that's another approach. But yeah, I don't even know what this is a whole. This could be a whole other yeah. <laughs> called standalone episode. Maybe I should do one, actually. Maybe we'll put a uh, note in the calendar that will reconvene <laughs> uh, released and, and we can pick over it and tear our hair. Mm. Mostly I'm hopeful, though, because I do think it's a different kind of poll in the sense that I assume that it's going to be like over a thousand respondents, whereas in the past, I believe it's been a fraction of that. Mm -hmm. So that just means I think it's going to be different. Um, And I think, you know, that's going to be really, really interesting. So, you know, we'll see. Um, I didn't do anything like put TV shows on there. I'll say that right off the bat. I, that was also <laughs> going to, um, I, 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 I suspect that we will see, um, uh, some votes for some votes for television, for content of all, yeah. of all kinds and all varieties. Um, let a thousand flowers bloom. It, speaking again of Robin Wood's, uh, sight and sound ballad in 2002, his last one, mm. I remember his, the note annotation of his ballot was limited to a teaser that he almost included Michelle Hanukkah's The Piano Teacher, but it's too soon. And then he died before he could submit another ballot. And um, so we'll never know. But similarly, I think it's a little too soon for anyone to vote for 
the televisual sensation of, of the summer and indeed the year. <laughs> Nathan Fielder's The Rehearsal, which is streaming now on, or possibly even being broadcast also on HBO, but definitely streaming on HBO Max. Yes. I, I confess I have no idea um, the difference at this point between linear and streaming programming, and I think it's too late to learn. So this is, so The Rehearsal. Um, what, what, what is The Rehearsal? <laughs> yes. Tell, tell us, tell us for the portion of listeners who, who do not know the premise or, or even have only known it secondhand through, you know, well, people's complaints about it. Yeah. yeah. Well, former business student, Nathan Fielder, a Canadian has, uh, has, um, created this sort of persona in his previous shows. Um, most notably Nathan for you, which ran for four seasons of a sort of, um, it's it's hard, especially also the way that that discourse has evolved to talk a lot about um, mental health and various um, autism spectrum disorders. It's hard not to lean into diagnostic language when talking about the character that Nathan Fielder has created. This sort of Nathan figure in the show, who is kind of him, and like all comic personas, sort of is an exaggerated and edited um, version of his deepest anxieties about himself in this case um that he's profoundly socially awkward and has a need to sort of um his insecurities and anxieties about social interaction have led him in various ways to be to be controlling or to hurt people and so that's the sort of Mm. premise the premise begins with this character who is increasingly in the modern style hyper self-aware and and second and third and fourth guessing the way in which he moves through the world i think that the pers- i think that the fielder persona as it is on screen speaks to a lot of modern anxieties about people who uh, from that people who interact with people more and more through screens have about in-person interaction and communicating clearly and cleanly and being understood and in, in the conceit of this show is that he has come up with the best possible way to solve the problem of social <laughs> awkwardness, which is that everything can be worked out ahead of time in rehearsals. It's interesting because there is a first episode that seems like a proof of concept and possibly even a pilot that is a totally standalone thing in which he builds this set based of um, an incredibly eerily accurate soundstage replica of Williamsburg's Alligator Lounge so that this guy can rehearse over and over again a conversation he's going to have with a longtime friend on trivia night, at which he reveals that he's been lying about some aspect of his biography to this person for some time. And then, rather than proceed in like discrete episodes, it evolves a little bit at a time. And actually something that Fielder is generally very good at in the comic situations that he engineers is sort of boiling the frog very gradually, like escalating and ratcheting a situation a little bit at a time so you barely notice that it's happening and then you're sort of trapped in boiling water. And in the same way, he has sort of subtly by degrees altered the premise of the show so that instead of like six different people in rehearsals over the course of the six episodes, it is basically him, had this woman who wants to become a parent, is rehearsing parenting with a series of child actors who have to be switched out every so often because of child labor laws. The uh, Fielder legal team is legendary. According to a lot of people who have worked with him, he has 
really good lawyers and makes the sort of like obtaining of release forms like a huge part of his comedy increasingly on screen. So gradually it becomes Fielder and this this woman trying to raise a child and Fielder trying to co-parent with this woman. We should say that as we are discussing this, we don't know what happens in the finale, but we have left off with this woman, Angela, dropping out of the rehearsal and Nathan Fielder now co-parenting, not, not, not even co-parenting anymore, now just raising this child actor and trying to, the sort of thing that's been the premise all along is trying to figure out how to be a person in the world in what is basically the sort of like, I guess, primal scene of social awkwardness, parenting. <laughs> um, right, yeah. Can I, I just want to, since you've, I think you've really been encapsulating it and the way that it also is changing, the show basically changes from one episode to the next while at the same time like spinning out out of control or having the pretense of spinning out of control can i just roll a hand grenade into the (laughs) (laughs) okay i mean this is not really i'm i'm sure some people think this but weirdly it has not been people talk about the show and they'll like acknowledge how much of it is staged or how much of it is planned but then they'll refer to certain parts of it as if these are givens about how it's operating yeah there are certain things that i'm not sure about well, I mean, just just to say, like, one thing is that I don't actually buy that these actors are being switched in and that that's actually going on for a long period of time. I don't actually buy that that whole process is happening. And I don't mean that like, it's deceptive. <laughs> I just mean, I think it's a hilarious bit. But the idea that this is actually like a real life Synecdoche, New York, or uh, what's the one, the Russian one, Dow, <laughs> where, you know, which was this, everyone just look up Dow. It's this... Also, you know, another insane uh, guy was basically trying to create a running, like, I don't know, Soviet surveillance style village that then he would film aspects of. But from the outside, uh, and I even, you know, assigned a writer to cover this, like, it was hard to tell how much of that was actually happening or was just happening as a Potemkin village. Um, And so in this case, the same thing for the rehearsal, like, it doesn't even make, why would you even do that? Like, you know, you're just going to... It doesn't just because he made the replica of the alligator lounge doesn't mean he actually did built everything else that he's doing that you know so that's like my thing that I just think it's hilarious that people are talking about it I'm not I'm not like knocking what you just said I'm just saying that I just don't think that's even I don't even think that's happening and I don't think it's a bad thing but I just want to recognize it as a bit rather than like a social experiment you know yeah and I think it's hard in some ways to discuss what the show is actually about because so much of both the comedy and the surprise and the sort of like thrilling and strange experiential process of absorbing this is it's about its own making. So I sort of made a case for it at the beginning as being about social interaction and that's sort of the premise. But I think that what people are really responding to is, and yeah, some skepticism, some skepticism of the process I think is warranted, but I think people are really responding to, I can't believe how elaborate the scenario is and whether that's on the level of, and because this is ostensibly nonfiction, um, but nonfiction is always authored. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about certain things in the ed- chronology of the editing, like in one episode, he goes off to, supposedly he goes away on like from the middle of this rehearsal for like weeks to Los Angeles to do an acting workshop. And I was just thinking before we recorded this, like, is that like, is that actually the order of it? Or did he do that earlier in the season? 
or in the preparations of the pre-production process and they decided to edit it into the show in this way. Like, I don't think he owes us very much by way of explanation because I think that like so much of the thrill of the show is in these sort of gauntlets that he's throwing down of, of manipulation of circumstances of the, of the reality of the show of like the expenditures of HBO's budget. And that also makes it hard to sort of figure out what the show is about other than its own making. But I think that also the apparatus of ostensibly nonfiction television or content in general in a world where people are becoming very famous for staging things on platforms that started out as photo sharing apps for friends the sort of maintenance of a particular image and the stresses that go into that, I think really resonate throughout the show. I think also um, to return to the legal stuff about, to return to all the sort of legal stuff and getting to sign releases, there are wonderful bits in, um, there's wonderful bits in the acting workshop episode where he shows all of the actors just passing their, skimming their eyes very briefly over incredibly generous release forms and, yeah, just a sheaf of papers that they're clutching. Yeah, and it's and it's true, and it's true that nobody reads the terms and conditions, and so in some ways the rehearsal is these sort of collapsing layers of performance and artifice, and crucially surveillance, and like the house in which he and this woman are ostensibly co-parenting has cameras in every room. In some ways, it can be analogous to like a nanny cam situation or a ring door camera or something. Um, in some ways, it can be analogous to just allowing cookies. The cost of entry to reading a website is to allow ever more elaborate methods of digital surveillance and to, in, to let those into your life. And I think that the sort of semi-coercive way in which um, we submit to being in some ways public and a performance of our own lives is, I think, really a sort of rich mm. and terrifying aspect of what the rehearsal is about for me. Well, I mean, I think also what makes it such a challenge to talk about is that it's it's kind of a animal, vegetable, mineral uh, conundrum, or it's a, what were those made up rabbit, uh, what is it called, harelope? Jackalope? Jackalope. The show is a jackalope. Cause, because for me, I just found that there are any ways you could get angry at it. You could get angry at it because it's unethical documentary. So some people have been unhappy about, oh, people didn't know what, they were getting into or how it would be used. And then they, you know, I think a couple times I saw the example of the house cleaner who owned a house cleaning business and she didn't know that what she would be doing for Nathan for you was going to be a comedy. And if she had, she wouldn't have done it. So on the one hand, it's like, it's not an ethical documentary style that he's doing. So that's one thing. Or then you can say, well, obviously it's not a documentary. It's a reality show. And it's like, well, if it's a reality show, it's like the most bizarrely obsessive compulsive reality show <laughs> that I mean, reality shows are not supposed to make you think for a second, you know, like they're, they're you're never more than three seconds away from, uh, you know, a, a weird smash zoom and a music blip. And then someone else is either sit down to camera interview or, you know, some fight. I mean, just to like reduce it to the, the yeah. parody of it. But, and this is not that. He's constantly stopping short to question his decisions, to be thoughtful or even pseudo-thoughtful in ways that are not even always funny. Like the crazy thing for me about this show, I don't know how you felt, is that I was like, that was interesting, but I don't think it was funny. You know? <laughs> I mean, well, yeah. Except in Kretschus. I mean, in some ways it's interesting. He does like a bait and switch where 
it's very it's a very self-critical show but the self-criticism is sort of misdirected the self-criticism is always directed at the character nathan's social awkwardness and inability to like connect really connect with people and that becomes sort of a proxy for nathan fielder the showrunner's manipulations of people i also think what you're saying about reality tv is interesting because i think that we are watching people be manipulated and subjected to fairly standard uh, selective nonfiction editing techniques, but right. in the context of like not a show about going to a tropical island um, and trying to count everybody's <laughs> and count how many abs everybody has, but to do things that like can actually affect. I also think that like some of the things, and this goes back to Nathan for you too, like having um, Mall Santa Claus, who's a convicted felon, come to talk to this kid to try to dissuade him from his childhood dream of becoming an astronaut is like, he does stuff with very young actors. And this was also the case in like the most recent episode where he's like getting, like instructing this young, purportedly at least instructing this young child actor in Judaism. And I know we don't know what is all going on here, but you do kind of wonder like, kids are fairly young and impressionable. Is it like, it's very strange the way that he is sort of involving children in these or child actors in this. And partly it's because their parents are involving them in this. And if it wasn't this, it would be something else. And partly I think it's like, mm. I don't know. In, the power dynamics in the show are so strange and naughty in ways that like, I think reflect back on real things uh, yeah. that we all sort of subject ourselves to in different ways. That's really interesting. That's a uh, yeah, sure. I think part of it is he's been he's been showing all the artifice that goes into actual current filmmaking. I mean, there are a lot of there's been a lot of you know movies or shows that show artifice, but it feels like artifice from like 20, 30, 40 years ago. Mm -hmm. The stuff he's showing now is is more feels more more up to date, and yeah, it does reflect upon what we're complicit on a regular basis. He just is either showing it to us or dramatizing it, and and that's where I get to like where I don't actually buy that all of it is happening. Like <laughs> in some cases, you know, he's maybe dramatizing the manipulation, but maybe not showing us all of it. But I mean, and he's conveying the fact that it occurs. I think in terms yeah. of it being up to the minute, like I think we have all had experiences. Like at my, I worked for a time as a proofreader for a major telecommunications company. And at one point I was asked to, I had like been sort of semi-coerced or like mandatory volunteering to like record a little video that could be spliced into a, a year end montage about how we were all like coming together <laughs> to cope for COVID. And then I got an email a few months later from somebody on like the recruitment team asking me to sign like a release that would give me them, give them the rights to my image in this video in particular, in whatever way that, whatever way that they saw fit, basically it was a very broad release. It's like, I, I'm not signing that. And I wondered if there would be any repercussions and I never heard mm. back from them. I know people who have every keystroke logged. I think that I would like... I, Are you trying to tell me something, Mark? <laughs> I mean, yeah. Like, I know like I, I, a relative of mine who, like, does, like, some sort of data entry job for, like, a major... For another large global company has, like, keystroke logging uh, so that, she, that they know that she's doing her job at every moment of the day. And that is a condition of her employment. Um, yeah you know people in customer service you know that that has been closely monitored even even before like internet oh yeah like the security yeah. cameras in restaurants are so that um, yeah, stuff, yeah. are so that you don't yeah. are so that you don't skim god forbid you skim tips um right it's and it's that sort of coercion and manipulation that i think is like the show is much closer to that than like 
for instance, um, Michael Moore editing Roger and me out of chronological order. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's, I mean, I think that so much of the fascination of the rehearsal is sort of meta about its making and the sort of incredulity at what goes into it. And it's not like it's a show about the bachelor where it's like, Oh, they don't really love each other. They just want to be on television. It's much more day to day than that. And Mm -hmm. I think that to a certain extent, when people are talking about being unsettled by documentary ethics, it's, it's, it's ethical. Is it moral? Um, I don't know. Uh, but, <laughs> but I think that the standards and practices that he's using, and I applaud the extent to which he shows you people having to sign a release, which is the thing we all do now, uh, yeah. is really, um, I think it's very unsettling. Yeah. Um, but, but I mean, there's a, there is, that's one thing I do like about the show, which is the fussiness of it. Because yeah. I like the idea that he's kind of taking the, the, the kind of seamless fun we might otherwise get if someone else was making the show and just fussing over it so much and i like that because there's something true and real about about that even though those are meaningless words yeah in, in, well, in, in this case but yeah well, he makes he makes the sort of the comedy comes from seeing this incredibly insidious and massive surveillance apparatus wielded by someone a character who is ostensibly just like an awkward loser which <laughs> which is like an old sci-fi trope in a lot of ways. Like it's, hmm. it's the man behind, it's the man behind the curtain, or I guess Zardoz is specifically riffing on the wizard of Oz, but yeah, it's the, um, the sort of slightly awkward kid in the basement who's, you know, scamming lonely men in four different States out of, um, out of, out of money by pretending to be a beautiful Belarusian woman, that sort of misdirection of displacing this, displacing the anxiety about these kinds of manipulations onto someone who is ostensibly just like sort of like an awkward and passive aggressive, anxious uh, Canadian former business student is really, <laughs> I think is really fascinating. Yeah. And, and playing with a pretense of naivete as well. So he's like in some ways a naive narrator, which of course is ridiculous because he's orchestrating this. Yeah. It's the social network, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> now that's, I really like that. That's a, Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that we can only and that we can really only conceive of this psychologically and not industrially. Mm. Well, I mean, another thing is, you know, it's a documentary, it's a reality show, but there's also where just thinking about according to comedy norms. So mm. it's just a comedy, and you know, then that makes me think of the, this is all just material that is assembled in this way, and it's fiction. You know, like I don't whatever it once was, it's now fiction. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, but it's fiction in the way that say stand-up comedy is fiction, which is similar, like whatever it once was, it's now stand-up, you know? And, and that also applies because stand-up is so much based upon something coming out of her persona and someone's observations on the world and thinking, you know, narrating, these are my reactions, this is what I'm thinking. So I actually thought about stand-up as well a fair amount during this, even though this is all about a, you know, putative, like, live action thing. Mm-hmm. But I also thought about that as a stance. What is stand-up, you know? Is it is, is stand-up fiction or is it non... You know what I mean? What are jokes? Mm. Who are the... Yeah, who are the characters in... And it's also similar in the way that, like, it's not just a stand-up who is playing a character on stage when he's telling jokes about his life, but also all the people in his lives also then mm-hmm. become, become characters in his act. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and also the fact that the way in which they have built this fake suburban house in Oregon 
and have like fake snow around the outside of it and a picture perfect fake garden. It is, it's, it's also a sitcom house in a lot of ways. <laughs> right. And they are a sitcom family with like the hapless dad and the adorable child who, who says the darndest things. It mm-hmm. is this, and that's, and so that's also, so it's a family sitcom derived from, from the stand-up, com- stand-up comics act, like much like Home Improvement. Yeah, in many ways, it's exactly like Home Improvement. I'm going to stick that. <laughs> yeah. And it, I, it's also the cracked lens version of the sitcom. You know, Charlie Kaufman obviously started out writing mm-hmm. sitcoms and Get a Life was, was one, one thing, but also tried other things. I guess if Charlie Kaufman at all was a performer or wanted even to perform, which you can't think of a person who less wants <laughs> to be uh, in front of the camera. Um it might look something like this. So it's also like almost gener- a generational thing. Like, yeah, if Charlie Kaufman was coming up now, would this have been more like what he was he was doing in terms of the tools that would seem natural for him to deconstruct? Um, mm-hmm. So, I mean, that also comes to mind, but I like the idea of it as a sitcom. And the whole thing is almost cerebral, so cerebral, I'm kind of surprised it exists in a way, like sometimes. Yeah. Um, it's a weird mix of like cerebral and then just like the most kind of blunt sort of thing. I don't know. Yeah. I've talked about like, I've talked about Nathan for you with people up at the office. Like it's, there is a real sense of late, I guess, latent incredulity at the, at the mechanics of reality TV and in the case of Nathan for you, startup culture. And I, I think more than anything mm. else, people just marvel at like what he is able to get away with. Yeah. And what he is able, what he is able to use HBO's money on, I think it begins from this place of just of just sheer amazement at, <laughs> at the at the conceit, and and maybe that's a segue. <laughs> yes, I think so. Yeah, I'm sure we could we could kick kick this can around <laughs> forever. But yeah, I want to hear the segue. Go for it. Well, just because I think that. Um, we were talking before the show about um, a film that uh, I recently watched that both in terms of its incredible layers of artifice and multiple layers of performance is is just an incredibly dense text. And so appreciation for it usually begins with just a sheer and such an incredible logistical undertaking that a lot of discussion of it really never goes past marvelment at the premise. And I refer, of course, to another great work of art by one of the defining autistic puppet masters of his age. I, uh, we are now talking about Andy Warhol's Chelsea Girls. I, let's, <laughs> let's say, can we say neurodivergent, maybe? I think we can. Yes, we can say, um, I'm, not, I'm not a diagnostician, and neither is anyone else on Twitter. Uh, I will just say that right now. Well, so, so conveniently for those of us who were um, filling out sight and sound ballots, um, Anthology Film Archives, actually the weekend before the ballots were due, uh, right, yeah. film, um, had a 16mm native series of Andy Warhol's durational cinema. Um, I was told that their screening, that the last time they screened Empire, the projector, they did not have a projector that was capable of projecting at 16 frames a second. So Empire was actually 20 uh, minutes shorter than it should have been. This was about 10 years ago, and I was really surpri- and oh. I was really gratified to hear this because I actually know somebody who was at that screening and came out of it thinking that they had skipped a reel because he got out like 20 minutes before he was supposed to have dinner. Sharp eye or sharp, yeah. sharp internal I mean, clock. I mean, if you're if you're committed, you're 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 committed. So at the uh, in the smaller of the two theaters at Anthology, uh, a sold out crowd 
had the great privilege of witnessing um, a dual projector performance of Chelsea Girls. And I guess no two, um, no two screenings are entirely the same just in terms of the timing of winding and unwinding each reel and when to start and when to switch over the soundtracks. And the sheer layers of, of concept are incredible, but also um, this sort of simultaneous series of Warhol's people improvising in character, kind of, for the duration of a 33-minute reel of 16-millimeter film that is also recording simultaneous sound. And also, much like Nathan, for you, mm -hmm. there is a real sense of multiple layers of fiction happening at the same time. And there are also just really fascinating power dynamics that increasingly come to the fore as Warhol's, as Warhol performers like Mary Warrenov and especially Ondine in the, um, the Pope sequence are driving these improvisations and whipping their scene partners into shape. In Ondine's case, literally, he gets, um, he, this is one of the last ones, and it happens simultaneously to a beautiful stroboscopic close-up of Nico crying, presumably because the lights are so bright. And Andine, I guess, shoots speed and then does this improvisation in which he is the Pope and he hears this woman's confession and she calls him a phony. Uh, and instead of going, yes, and, he starts to beat her up and walks around sad and has to be calmed down. And so there are these layers of, there are these layers of fictionality, with, as with every Warhol thing, their personalities first and foremost, but there are also personalities and acting scenarios. And in this, and in Chelsea Girls specifically, you see the way in which directing a performance becomes this really harrowing exercise in power. So that was sort of a really surprising takeaway. It made me think a lot of the internal dynamics at the factory and how Warhol was this godhead that all of these people often from quite marginal, uh, who were quite marginal in the art world, orbited. Yeah. And so being sort of witness to all of these most favorite of his performers trying to trying to mug for the camera, trying to be themselves, trying to get other personalities over and and fighting with each other, sometimes violently about these performances. Really, um, I know it's yeah. a it's a great film about scene politics, I guess, um, mm -hmm. as well yeah. as as well as sort of. Um, again, to sort of make a parallel with Nathan for you about that sort of is informed by very, at that point, occurrence modes of filmmaking, this sort of like new style of diaristic, rough around the edges, narrow gauge filmmaking. Um, before digital and consumer grade HD video cameras, it was like a, one of, a, similarly a great revolution in expanding access and deprofessionalizing cinema. And so it becomes this document of its own making because there isn't the structure in place to totally build uh, this artifice. Uh, you see right. the scaffolding. Um, yeah. So it was, yeah, so just an incredibly, incredibly rewarding and not to say exhausting, grueling, frequently inaudible. Yeah. But really um, incredible film to watch and can only really be seen projected and is thankfully projected not infrequently in New York City, um, at least. Yeah. Well, yeah, that, that was my, that was how I saw it as well. Anthology, the small theater, which I guess is where they did the, whatever it was called, the total cinema of having, you know, blinders, those famous photographs of Laurel oh, and yeah. others with the blinders on either side of them, which is always how I sit in there is imagining that I cannot see to left or right of me. But yeah, I saw, I saw it now probably too many years to really weigh in like uh, with any details at this point 
but I was also just impressed by this, the sprawl of it. Yeah. The expansiveness of its artifice and also just sort of puzzled that it isn't more often like top of conversation talking about Warhol. I mean, obviously there's kind of an embarrassment of riches with his, his work. Uh, though conversely, I know there are a lot of people who are pretty sick of hearing about him, but it's, <laughs> but I feel like it's an example of a work that has has suffered from not being more visible and is kind of a glaring example of, of a movie where because it's comparatively hard to see instantly that you know it's it's maybe not as prominent in, in discussions and like a lot of his work and maybe you're talking about in terms of scene politics is really interesting because I think it's just become like a metaphor for scene politics. Like if, if people who talk about the Chelsea hotel or whatever actually watched <laughs> Chelsea girls <laughs> and also obviously a film that should be part of a, a, a queer canon or some hmm. should be part of one of the versions of a queer canon, you know? Well, yeah. I mean, there are a lot of, um, I mean, there are a lot of simply domestic scenes um, with, um, men and women, all women, all men, there's a sort, there's a lot of sexual playfulness. It's interesting because the first Warhol film I ever saw for some reason, um, in well, probably, possibly even intro to cinema studies was my hustler, mm -hmm. which is another sort of durational improvisation about power and rivalry between sugar plum fairy, Joe Campbell and, um, and Paul America. And I think that also like so much of the factory legend now is wrapped up in Walk on the Wild Side, which is a song about hmm. primary, which is a song about transgender people and sex workers. And that I think that there's more of a recognition that likes, for me at least, I mean, for me, because I think I've been, because like my engagement with Warhol has been relatively heavy over the last couple of years in terms of where it was earlier in my life. I think that like, it seems much more obvious maybe now Maybe because also like Chelsea Girls is the name of a Nico album and Nico is uh, the, the most purely heterosexual icon to come out of the factory and is associated with all of these great male artists who loved her and lost her. And she was this elusive mm -hmm. chanteuse and she's a huge part of this movie, but it, and she's in it in this sort of domestic scene at the beginning, trimming her bangs with like a man and a, and a little boy in the kitchen. So it begins with this domestic place but also then has a lot of the other domestic spaces are in some ways um, queer or non-normative. Um, mm -hmm. It's a hotel, so they're always on beds. There are um, hustlers, there's age gap power games. Um, and yeah, and so there, it, is, there, it is striking the way in which this sort of cube of the hotel room can sort of be, or the frame and the sort of 33 minute reel just mm -hmm. it starts when it starts and it ends when it ends and it's this entire self-contained world and then the next one starts the way it can be a container for all these different kinds of of relationships um i think is really a sort of yeah experiment in flexible structuralism mm -hmm. the ball is round the game is 90 minutes everything else is theory kind of thing mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. so yeah so i think yeah so i think it is a really striking it is really striking as like a as a queer film and maybe Maybe speaking of um, rooms as yes. containers. I see where you're going and I fully support it. Okay, great. So <laughs> so you just wrote that wonderful um, oral history for Metrograph of Duart, the uh, film processing lab, run for many years by Erwin, Erwin Young? Erwin Young, yes. Son of Al Young, who's kind of like the it, ground yeah. zero, yeah. 
and they were really, and how supportive they were of many great, especially New York independent filmmakers like uh, Susan Seidelman and Spike Lee. And as well, Irwin, uh, Irwin's brother, Robert Young, was known for his films, especially made in starring Edward James almost about um, yes. Latin American experience. And so at this um, wonderful Metrograph series, uh, a sort of dual tribute to both of their brothers, I had the great fortune last night of seeing a very apt double feature of Lizzie Borden's Working Girls, which was processed at Duart, and Robert Young's Short Eyes. And they are both these sort of, I guess, I don't know, bottle episodes. They both take place over 24 hours, almost entirely within a single space or set. One of them was a play, one of them could have been a play. And they're sort of oppositely gender-coded. Working Girls takes place at a... um, Manhattan apartment that is used as a brothel and it is this female space the women sort of hang out in the living room leafing through Harper's Bazaar and waiting for their johns to come and talking about their lives and their struggles and Short Eyes it takes place in the tombs in the uh, men's house of detention in lower Manhattan and it's all of these prisoners and the sort of racial uh, dynamics and doomed politics of it and both are really fascinating films. I have maybe more to say about Short Eyes just because I know that the play by Miguel Pinheiro, who wrote it while he was incarcerated at Ossining, at Sing Sing, for, as a 25-year-old uh, on an armed robbery charge, uh, he, wrote, he initially wrote it at a, write, at like a prison writing workshop, and he's in the film. And then there are people in um, at least one of the cast members of both the Broadway play initially in the 70s and the Robert Young film was also somebody who had been incarcerated and had legal troubles after the making of the film as well. But because I think it was such like a bracing look at this, at this milieu in these lives at a time in which, especially like Hispanic stories in New York City were becoming much more visible. And Miguel Pinheiro also founded the New Yorican Poet Cafe. Oh. That, yeah, that Short Eyes, yeah. Short Eyes became a really important showcase for, um, for black and Latin actors in New York mm-hmm. because it's incredible material the monologues that they get, the sort of roughness that they have to bring to each role as guys who are incarcerated. And you don't really know what anyone did except for the middle-class white guy who is there on a, for pedophilia. That's sort of, he's the titular short eyes. And that's sort of significant because he's the, both like the highest on the totem pole outside and the lowest inside. And that's the sort of catalyst for the day's events. But other than that, it's a lot of, um, a lot of really incredible roles for, um, for black and Latin actors, and especially at a time when TV was doing more stuff in withdrawing more from from the New York theater world in terms of casting and more locate on location production, and maybe a more diverse cast of at least guest stars. So, Short Eyes became a really important showcase for black and Latin actors. Like there was a second stage revival of it in 1984 that. Um, hmm. Basically, like Edward James almost dropped out of it to go take over as a lieutenant on Miami Vice. And then everybody who was in that production with him ended up being on Miami Vice as a guest star at least like once or twice. Um, quick, quick shout out. <laughs> Just want to give a quick shout out to your filmmaker, your historic filmmaker piece on Miami Vice uh, guest stars. And Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's I mean, yeah. So I was very excited to see Short Eyes because I knew it um, by reputation as this incredible showcase for... Um, like Louis Guzman is in the movie. I don't think he doesn't have any lines, but he's one of the other inmates. 
a lot of mm -hmm. people who went on to do a lot of back and forth work between the New York theater world and TV guest spots um, were probably first discovered doing some or other production in the 70s or 80s of Short Eyes. Um, mm -hmm. So it's a really, um, so I was fascinated at, in it for that way. Um, and also just the incredible, the incredible grubbiness and claustrophobia of, of the room. And whereas I think the, the, the brothel in Working Girls is a much more sanitary and welcoming up to a point in both cases, there's a, there's a real sense of, again, because this seems to be the theme of the, uh, the episode of, of artifice. And it's about the ways in which um, the titular Working Girls have to perform or at least do, do a modicum of performance for guys and the different layers one of the most fascinating things about their interactions with the successive Johns is how deep the Johns want them to go into fantasy. Some of them know it's just a transaction. Some of them are really happy to have such a great scene partner. Some of them are totally deluded. And that becomes a really fascinating thing. As, and, and much like Short Eyes, it's a very political work about structures of socioeconomic power. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because the madam, the brothel madam, is a very classy Southern woman in a white skirt suit. And just a uh, petty bourgeois tyrant, um, <laughs> and a really fascinating, a really fascinating portrayal of a sort of acquisitive and upwardly mobile entrepreneur. Yeah, who chooses um, loyalty to her class over over her gender, and is sort of really the villain of the piece more so than any of the men. At least, but it's also a great a great performance and a really funny, biting, charming script. Um, so yeah, that was a really fun double feature, courtesy of the Young Brothers. Yes, courtesy of the Young Brothers, indeed. And I can only speak to to working girls, and and you know, obviously for that piece, I, I did speak uh, with Lizzie Borden about it. But I mean, just talking about spaces, it what's remarkable about that movie is how much goes on in a space that basically looks like a combination of a office break room and like a doctor's waiting room. Mm -hmm. And then you know, that's obviously completely on on purpose you know, making it look like that. And the one great thing I didn't know beforehand is that uh, Lizzie Borden said that was actually partly filmed in her loft. So she just basically created that set in, in her loft, you know, part of, I'm sure, keeping to a budget and that the stairs went to nowhere. <laughs> there was not like a, it was not like a two floor set. It just went nowhere. And so I kind of love that. You, know, you just have people, that's even better, you know, somehow that this is, I don't know, it seems like another meta layer to the, to the whole fantasy um, of it. But yeah, I, I really, I think it's exactly right about the, the, the classism going on. And it's obviously a movie that's also feels just kind of like a, a perfectly quaffed, like scream into the 80s void as well, because the, the you know, particular makeup styles are completely in line with cover model kind of centerfold influenced, you know, 80s sort of makeup styles. And mm -hmm. um, it just, I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm often dipping into Studs Terkel's working. <laughs> There's one interview with a, uh, you know, a, a sex worker. She's very insistent on that's the fact that her job is no different from like a secretary's job or and she's really comparing the, the kind of demands the world's put on her to the demands that are put on women generally. Uh, so that's kind of a, a, a leitmotif of that interview in working. Mm -hmm. um, and, I, you know, I, I definitely thought back to, to working girls. Just the fact that so much of the drama and so much of what really the breaking point is for the main character is um, it isn't the, it isn't necessarily the work itself but it's that her boss is trying to guilt her into getting her to cover shifts. 
Like that's the the main drama. She's like, yes, I don't have any girls for tonight. Can you stay? And tries both to be like, you're my friend and I'm your boss. And don't you feel like an obligation to this business? But like we've all, we've all been asked to cover shifts when we had something going on that night or just didn't feel like working. And asks and, that don't feel like asks, you know? Yeah. And a sudden shocking implication that the boss sees you as like someone with equal ownership over the business. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 It, I was, it was a movie that was, I think I had seen it before. I want to say in like a, I mean, maybe you, you remember, but I want to say I saw it in a, like NYU class I was sitting in. I'm not sure. But when I watched it again for this piece, I, I yeah, I really saw it in a, in a new light, you know. I mean, Working Girls has been, has already gotten the kind of rediscovery treatment in the past few years. I think it's a Criterion title now. So there's... Yeah, yeah. It was This was a new Janus uh, digital restoration. Yeah. That's kind of remarkable about the series. I mean, I think a, a through line between both Robert and Erwin Young is the attraction to, uh, you know, either either the outsider or whoever's treated as marginal or underdog and just putting them front and center and just, yeah the shifting that, that point of view like like that that goes in terms of what Erwin Young would often you know help along you know with more lenient payment schemes <laughs> or or with what Robert Young would film himself and and that also goes a little bit just to pull in Michael Romer since uh, the two of them worked on, on a number of films I think he also had that sort of approach um, were there a lot of people at either of those screenings? Working Girls had was on the smaller screen that, that was mostly full. I think Working Girls does have, maybe in a way similar to a sort of like deeper understanding of Warhol as a queer filmmaker. Um, mm. And the, uh, I think like as, um, as discourse, as mainstream discourse about sex work becomes more politicized and Marxist. I think that there is a there's a real appetite for working girls. I think people are always discovering what what an insightful film it is, um, in term as like a work of socioeconomic and political critique as a feminist film and all that. There were very few people there for a very pristine thirty five millimeter print of Short Eyes. I think I think asking people to show up at nine fifteen on a Sunday night to see a movie about a child rapist in prison in the seventies is a um, is a big ask, uh, despite the sort of the power of the performances and the indelibility of the um, of the milieu and the sort of inspirational historical backstory to it. it and it is a really um, it's not like a, a terribly tough sit, but it is kind of a hard sell. But I think it's a really I'm, I was really glad to have the opportunity to to see it and gain more of an appreciation for yeah. where, where Miguel Pinero was coming from and the sort of operatic sense of moral dilemma that he was able to sort of create in this milieu. I think it was, yeah, it's a really, um, it's a very vital film. Yeah. And play, I assume. Yeah. I think it's pretty cool that, that they did program it. Credit where it's due, I, I you know, uh, Nellie Killian, the programmer for, for the Do Art series. Well, you've, you've been to the, to the same theater to see something, right? Oh, I did. Thanks for reminding me. Yes, I did. Um, it was just recently, uh, even a couple of days ago. And of course my, uh, battered brain can't remember i did i saw something on screen in there because i guess a bit of a i won't say nostalgia trip but again i don't know if this is happening for you but uh i'm finding i'm finding it like uh, alternately like really interesting and kind of like mortifying revisiting uh movies that i saw in high school (laughs) whenever i was in the 
larval stage of whatever I am now. And I like it like that, you know, was part of the early 90s. Can't say outright uh, independent film. And, and I know that uh, Darnell Martin herself, she's also makes a point of saying like she didn't, she wasn't making an independent film. She had the studio money. She, But, you know, along with a wave of kind of things that were very interesting and new to me in the early 90s, growing up in New York and going to the Angelica and whatnot. And so I probably talked about things like Nadja, uh, Michael mm-hmm. Almereda film in that context before, you know, or watching like forgotten prestige art house dramas like The Innocent starring Anthony Hopkins, other weird things like that. Anyone remember um, An Awfully Big Adventure starring uh, Hugh Grant? <laughs> Uh, I do not. You do not. Um, not. Okay. I don't know. Sort of similar period to the Englishman who went up a hill and came down a mountain. I remember that. Uh, Yeah. I I do remember that. Uh, Not that I saw it, but I remember it. I saw both of them. Um, So anyway, but back to I like it like that is, did I even say it? I like it like that. Uh, Yeah, that's that's the movie I I saw. And I, I just have a real love for New York movies and for also like a particular... It was like this, I don't know, five, six, seven year period of particular look of the colors on the screen as well. Mm, a great Bodega awnings in that movie. Yes. And Goya jars. Bodega yes. Col- Bodega color scheme in that movie. Just incredible. Yes. Yes. It, it, it's wonderful. And the movie starts with, you know, she wants to, you know, she wants to get a, like long camera movement uh and in the opening she i think it's it's it is one long shot where she's kind of swooping you know in and out and on on a street for the opening and you know at one point it just feels like the camera has just been set on the ground to get low enough and then goes high and stoop uh, life Mm. also a way of introducing a number of characters without introducing them necessarily um it's a movie also that seems like you know what it's up to but then there are all these weird little kinks and i kind of literally mean kinks because the sequence that is right up against the opening sequence. I don't know if you remember, I certainly did not. I, this is like the second scene of the film is um, Lauren Velez's character, Lizette. Uh, and she's, you know, married to this guy, Chino, who's ends up being a comp, kind of more complicated character also than you think he might. But anyway, the second scene is, is the two of them uh, having sex. You know, it's like a, <laughs> dirty new yorker cartoon of of people around like commenting on it like kids at the door and people banging from below and i love this just kind of silly chaos of it and that's the second scene of the movie and this was released by i want to say like columbia or something like i was gonna say columbia yeah columbia pictures you know if you think about studio codes that would be only okay in a gross-out comedy mm. but here it's just part of this like raucous kind of city life or whatever. I don't and, know what it, you know. And then before the first reel of the movie is even over, that guy is in jail. <laughs> yeah, it's in jail, yeah. It's an incredibly yeah. raucous film. I, ha, I I remember, I saw it a few years ago and had a, a great time with it. Yeah. It's so, it's so up and down. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And I think another thing that is sort of, the, uh, that I think is sort of similar to um, Darnell Martin's life is I know that she, um, if I'm not mistaken, Darnell Martin has a black father and a white mother and was raised mostly in black neighborhoods by her white mother after her father abandoned the family. And so colorism is a really big thing in I Like mm. It Like That. The title was Blackout, both a New York thing and also because it's about Latin aspirations. And so there's that great scene where uh, Lauren Velez's mother or, or grandmother um, is played by Rita Moreno 
and mm -hmm. uh, does not think that Chino is good enough for her, for her precious baby girl. And one of the things that she says about why her family, Rita Moreno says about why her family needs to be proud, and she said this so often that everybody else in the family mouths along to it, is that they have pure Castilian blood. I was like, I have never, and I think like, again, like I, I don't know if it's taken, a, that's 25 years ago. I think if you're looking at like conversations around colorism and sort of discourse and debate around in the, in the Heights movie and uh, West Side, the new West Side Story film, but like, I think yeah. that I like it like that is really prescient and I think points the way to um, a future of studio filmmaking that didn't really happen. Um, at least right. not for a right. couple of decades. But yeah. So that's a, that's a terrific film. Yeah. Yeah. And I think she also, I think she also makes a comment about one of the kids hair as well, you know, and oh, there's yeah. also that in, in there and no, it's, it's great. And, and I think, I guess I also like that, you know, it's a movie about like a relatively adult movie about sex as well, which it's, I mean, it's really walking a tightrope at times about, you know, like that opening, whatever second scene, it's like mm -hmm. there's a fine line between that being, yeah, about like parents who actually have sex and I don't know, being part of this like <laughs> vibrant street mural of like all the crazy things that happen in New York. But I, I, what the way the movie goes on after that, I mean, she ends up uh, having a, brief affair with her sleazy boss necessarily played because this is a 90s indie film by griffin dunn <laughs> who is who is really good also at just playing that's like really good at, at just like he's not like totally a character he's definitely sleazy but he's not just like like an 80s sleazy villain or something whatever well he is to the manor born so <laughs> you, would, you, you would expect yeah. him to you would expect him to yeah. have a certain a certain subtle flair for portraying people from Connecticut. Yeah. Connecticut adjacent yeah. people. <laughs> yeah. But I, I was just impressed by how, you know, Darnell Martin and treats that experience for the main character. It's not treated as like a tragic arc for her. She's basically like that happened and that's it. You know, <laughs> Yeah. I, I went to see the screening where um, Darnell Martin presented it and she actually brought her mother to it, which was really touching because her mother is quite advanced in years and she just said this lovely tribute to her. So, you know, that was oh. quite, quite cool. But you, you, there are moments where the movie's almost going to go into like with, with her son um, who is, has some sort of vaguely defined uh, street racket that he's participating in. And I love that you can kind of feel the filmmaker and the movie kind of not being sucked into that <laughs> as the dominant drama of the film. It's just part of it, but also not like a, a dismissed part of it. So I don't know. I felt there's a lot of stuff that's really nicely handled. And and then I'll just add one more thing, because when I interviewed her, she for, for the do art history, she mentioned this and also mentioned, talked about it at the introduction. After this, uh, Darnell Martin ran a filmmaking program for incarcerated children, meaning like teenagers at a, a Bronx uh, juvenile detention prison, or, which is also just kind of incredible she mentioned that you know she just she just did it um that's what she did next really you know yeah that's um, incredible so i don't know i was i was pretty impressed by that and then went on of course to direct like the pilot for oz which kind of cool thing she said that one of the examples she showed the students many of whom uh, were, were people who had killed you know uh, that was part of their their crime and and she showed them a pilot episode of oz <laughs> which is <laughs> to have them comment on it and I don't know. 
yeah, speaking of like reality and artifice again, it's just, I don't know, I kind of love that she, she did that. Yeah. So yeah, she's a real, a real original. Yeah. Yeah. Well, speaking of, of New York, of New York movies and speaking yes. of, let's see what, uh, what, what threads we can pull together. Um, of really flavorsome uh, New York independent filmmaking and character actors. Yeah, let's let's start with that as the way to go. Um, sure. So the forthcoming Funny Pages, uh, the first film by Owen Klein, known perhaps mostly to those of you out there in, in film land as, um, as the younger brother in The Squid and the Whale and uh, as the son of Kevin Klein and Phoebe Cates. I gather that like, if you hung out around St. Mark's place in like the late 2000s or 2010s, that he is mostly known as Owen from like being around a lot at like Kim's and other things. And he seems to have been a fairly precocious, um, budding young filmmaker who worked um, a lot with the Safties in a sort of assistant or PA capacity on their early films and hung out a lot. And his first film, which is uh, produced by executive produced by the Safdies is um, a really good film about being uh, a young kid who hangs around older guys and tries to sort of soak up their knowledge and being a teenager with precocious taste who tries to enact a fantasy of adulthood that is based on old art that nobody your age could possibly be interested in. (laughs) So it's about this kid from Princeton, New Jersey, who over winter break of his senior year of high school decides that he is going to move into a basement apartment in Trenton, not finish high school, not go to college, but he is going to make uh, underground cartoons in the um, R. Crumb sort of style. And Mm -hmm. it is about the sort of very strange and troubled, very marginal people that he meets and the sort of misadventures that he has in this sort of world of people who really still like vintage Archie comics and Tijuana Bibles and try to appreciate it's about, you know, as somebody who goes to a lot of repertory film and sees a lot of movies um, by himself in New York city at weird times, um, (laughs) but tries to do it in a normal way. You know, I, (laughs) I don't carry my belongings in four different plastic shopping bags from Fairway, which is now bankrupt. I don't. Um, well, you're missing out, Mark. That's all I can say. I, <laughs> I, I, I don't. I don't. I don't crinkle. I don't um, smell. I like old stuff, but in a normal way. But it's it's tough. Mark, you you are always neatly groomed when I see you. I, I <laughs> Uh, so I think it's a really, um, the character actors in it are, and many of whom are sort of not really actors, but are people that Owen Klein has met. And there are a couple of guys who he knows who used to work on the Joe Franklin show, this old sort of like, I don't know if it was public access or just local New York based TV talk show with like lots of old show people on it. They all have extremely, um, memorable faces shot in very unflattering close up, And it's a really, and it's just a just a fun romp through the underside of, of Bohemia, I guess, is my yeah. initial pitch for it. I, I, yeah, I really like the, the time given to, to, the, to the folks he, he, he hangs out with and also his kind of perpetual you know, earnestness about his mission. I think that the, the young actor who plays the character is you know, note perfect. And I also like the casting of his uh, mentor, uh, who we see, you know, mm-hmm. early in the movie, who is the playwright. 
the Pulitzer Prize winning playwright, <laughs> Stephen Adley Gerges, who is yeah, terrific as, as his mentor in the early part of the film. Yeah, it's it does have that kind of early period safty feel to it, I guess mm-hmm. you'd say. Collector of New Yorkers kind of, yeah. kind of feel. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I don't know, in the past two or three months, it's sort of impossible not to uh, uh, watch uh, Ghost World again. But yeah, that obviously comes to mind. And you see the difference between doing a movie like that, which is very much like a graphic novel come to life, where every single scene is heightened and incredibly like a, a panel. And you can't even always imagine some of the people living outside a panel. This is like the original. This is like closer to the model for the drawings, in a way, mm-hmm. uh, that the people he's showing. And that, that also goes for them being kind of unsettling. Like he winds up in a basement. Oh, God. Uh, rental, you know, which maybe it's the height of the ceilings. I mean, having like lived in a basement space myself, I think that's, that's part of what uh, gives them their peculiar charm. Uh, it's like literally your horizons are lower. <laughs> it is hotter, you know, because... Yeah, either the heat is on all the time or the pipes are right there or something like this. So that is quite a space that he, he designs there. A very well cast, like kudos to the production designer or uh, set designer or whatever on that. Even the air there is so thick the way that it's, it's filmed. It's, it is an incredibly tactile film. Um, mm-hmm. And that's both in terms of just the close-up and detail work, which really does, I think, harken to uh, underground comics in a different way, the sort mm. of caricaturist's eye for um, for acne or snot or uh, scabs or any sort of physical deformity, um, as well as sort of cutaway gags to like disconcerting objects. It is also a film about feeling a little bit guilty about your privilege and trying to sort of... Mm-hmm. But it, because he does have this very nice house with these very uh, well-put-together parents, his... Uh, his father is played by Josh Pace, who is usually cast, uh, who is quite the actor, the character actor who is quite often cast uh, for his resemblance to Jonathan Latham, I think. That's my theory. Huh. Um, uh-huh. And the sort of very nice place in Princeton that this kid rejects as being phony and a sense of guilt at the carpet that is being rolled out uh, before him that will t- carry him through the remainder of his adolescence into a comfortable adulthood and the sort of ways in which he tries to rebel authentically, mm-hmm. um, but can only really guess because the tools that he has are the art that he has consumed up to this point in his life, which um, mm-hmm. is not a super helpful roadmap. <laughs> so yeah, that's yeah. a really grody and funny film and a great addition to, I think we've been talking a lot about like a rogues gallery of like New York types throughout the years, whether it's mm-hmm. the Johnson, the Johnson working girls or the prisoners in short eyes or the kids on the block. And I like it like that. And here it's, it's Trenton. So it's not, it's not New York, but it's at least, you know, tri-state. It's at least the tri-state <laughs> area. Yeah. The greater New York area. So that's funny pages, which that's a movie that is, it is coming out. I believe August 26th. August 26th for Funny Pages. And yeah, while we're mentioning that, I will also just uh, mention uh, another movie that's, I guess, being revived in, in this month of August. Uh, and that is Keen, I guess, going along with the theme of artifice and brands of realism. That's Lodge Kerrigan's movie. And as I recall, it's sort of very mobile, cheek by jowl account of a person's life played by Damien Lewis and kind of movie charts his navigating a very rough particular episode 
And I just want to mention that because I think Lodge Carrigan is a filmmaker who, uh, you know, should be in the in the air more um, and kin to some of what their Dare Dens are doing in the late 90s. And so I, I hope people will track down Keen. It's not an easy sit, I will say. Like, <laughs> I think it's fair to say. And that's 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 to his credit. Very sweaty film. But that's Keen. And Lodge Carrigan, another uh, director who, I guess, largely works in television now, speaking of um, Darnell Martin before, who I think primarily does television at the moment. And then not do art, but I guess I also saw it at Metrograph, only because we were talking about like this sort of specific New York, New Jersey milieu. I saw the movie Property, not to be confused, <laughs> not to be confused with another very good movie, Private Property, which I also mm-hmm. encourage people to see, um, which is a wonderfully kind of scuzzy, voyeuristic thriller. But Property is a pre Vincent Portland independent film about Portland, you know, artists and affectionate ne'er do wells uh, dealing with being displaced, kicked out. Uh, Because the neighborhood they live in, you know, is going to be developed. Someone's bought up a whole block. So they're all going to be kicked out and they're trying to band together and deal with that. And I don't think at this particular moment, there are many like more profoundly unfashionable movies like it. They're all still kind of these lingering, happy, hippie artists um, and poets, spoken word artists. Van Sant, like you actually see a poster for Malanoche in the back of a bar that's one of the uh, settings for the film. The person who wrote that is in the film. Anyway, uh, I just wanted to mention property because I, I really love that they screened it. I think it's part of like a across the country road trip series or. Yeah, I think it's called Road Trip. It's just the, their Americana summer series. Yeah. And, and I just have to value a movie like that that is so specifically where it is. You know, I mean, it's, it doesn't make any concessions. It's really this patch of land, this group of people. A couple of them I could not stand. A couple of them I just would, would love to have a beer with. But yeah, I just loved it. This Motley Crew. So that's that's property, which uh, Gus Van Sant did the sound on, which is funny because the sound's actually not that great. But anyway, I guess it's good he went into directing. But anyway, that was property. Any any last uh, mentions or shout outs or writing you want to point us to? I really want to make sure because I think you didn't mention your, your writing on some of the things we're talking about. Uh, yeah, you can. My uh, my funny pages piece will be on Inside Hook and in furtherance of my continued interest in scuzzy, gross New York stuff. I have re- recently written about Ms. 45 for Reverse Shot as part of ah. their wonderful symposium on the films of 1981. So I have written a, a 41st anniversary consideration of Abel Ferrara's Miss 45. Very good. I will yeah. read that. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll go back to our respective scuzzy New York lives <laughs> and, and wrap it up there. But Mark, thank you for taking the time, uh, indulging all, all the wanderings. Oh, I thought this was—is this? I thought this was just a rehearsal. I thought we were yeah. going to do it again after this. At this point, I realized that I might have to practice how to podcast. <laughs> so, so I, I planted microphones through the rest of my day in order to see what a podcast would be like if it was not. Anyway, well, well, then we have to end with who you'd have to cast who would play yourself in that. Uh, okay. <laughs> one of the funny page, one of the guys from Funny Pages. Let's uh, Funny Pages. Okay. One of the comics. One of the one of the one of the comic shop. We can have have fun with that. Anyway, we'll we'll wrap up there. Thank you. And I'm sure we'll be talking again soon. Thank you very much for having me. And thank you all for listening. You've been listening to The Last Thing I Saw with your host, Nicholas Rapold. Please consider signing up at rapold.substack.com. Special thanks to the Minarets for the opening music. Thank you for listening. (laughs) 